for December 23rd, 2013. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 286, American Hustle. He doesn't sell real estate. He sells fake estate. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm Matthew Rather, here with the panel to talk about American hustle. But before we get to that, and before we get to the question of the week, uh, just until the end of the year, it's still the holiday shopping season. And if you're anything like me, you have not actually finished shopping to buy gifts for your your friends and loved ones for Christmas, if Christmas is indeed what you celebrate. Um, I have not, and I am relying on Amazon's next day shipping and, uh, uh, you know, all that stuff to really get me through, uh, and, and make me not look like an asshole to my, to my friends and family. So, uh, if you are anything like me, though, undoubtedly you're less of an asshole, um, you, uh, can, uh, help out overthinking it. If you are going to do any kind of last minute shopping, uh, on Amazon by using our referral code, uh, we're only going to plug this till, till the end of the year. Um, so you got, uh, the whole month of December to help us in this, uh, in this promotion. When you start your journey, through the dark shopping hallways of Amazon, through our affiliate links, any of the links to Amazon on Overthinking It, the ones on the homepage in the sidebar or in the gift guide where we actually recommend a bunch of awesome gifts for the overthinkers in your life. When you start uh, your Amazon browsing session through that and buy anything, what we recommend or anything else, uh, we will get a small uh, kickback, a few pennies on the dollar that um, you know will come to us and allow us to do things like uh, pay for the hosting that keeps the uh, podcast, media hosting. I actually went, uh, you know, you can buy sort of consolidated media hosting that does a, a flat fee kind of thing and then host your back- backlog for you for podcasts. I priced out what... Um, what it would cost to to use like Amazon uh, S3 or CloudFront or like another CDN, it would be hundreds of dollars to um, to host this podcast. We actually we do it for less than that, uh, but it's uh, it's still a, a big expense. So we appreciate you uh, because we know you have a choice of Amazon affiliate links around the holidays or around you know any blog post, and we're glad that you use ours to help support overthinking it and keep the uh, keep the light on in our in our server um, we've talked a little bit about our picks our holiday recommendations gift guides for you let's let's um open the uh, let's open the the uh, you know, orders report, uh, we can see an inventory of what people have ordered, not who's ordered what. Don't worry. Your, your privacy, uh, is protected, but you know, they need to account for what they're going to pay us or not pay us. And so we, um, we have to uh, uh, get an accounting of what people have bought using our affiliate codes. So here are a couple of the highlights of things. And I'm sorry if I'm ruining Christmas for anybody. If you know, <laughs> if if both you and uh, your if if both Giftor and Gifty are uh, are overthinkers and listen to this podcast, but uh, someone's getting a copy of A Feast of Ice and Fire, the official Game of Thrones companion cookbook. 
Oh, we should have recommended that. <laughs> That's, That's pretty awesome, awesome isn't it? Yeah. Uh, uh, someone, uh, someone is getting a copy of something called the Smitten Kitchen Cookbook. I don't know. I'm going to click through to that to see what it is. Ooh, it's won some awards, but I can't, uh, I can't read all that right now. Um, there's a blog, uh, kitchen blog that, that I actually love. I don't actually cook anything from it, but I like to imagine a parallel universe in which I do. And I'm, I'm happy in that universe. Oh, maybe. So, so maybe it's probably. Any cookbook from them has, has got to be. Why can't we? Why can't we? Why isn't someone publishing a blog of the be, uh, publishing a book of the best of overthinking it? Anyone who works in publishing out there, you know, email us and uh, we can do it. Ooh, someone bought the complete Babylon Five television series uh, on uh, on DVD. Ooh, someone bought. Someone this- has excellent taste. That <laughs> yeah. is that is superior television that you're watching there, which is awesome. Uh, so let's see. Someone bought Boy Meets World, the complete collection on DVD. So that's, that's awesome. Maybe that's a TFT podcast listener. Uh, oh, someone, this might be you, Matt. Did you buy Despicable Me Too on Blu-ray, DVD, and digital? Uh, no, but I mean, only because I've got it memorized. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, I got it, got it up here. I visualize me tapping my forehead. As I say, I've got it up here. Right. And also pointing to the DVD, the, the Blu-ray I already own. Um, <laughs> We we uh, tweeted out when uh, uh, when Firefly was on sale for six bucks, the complete Firefly on on DVD, uh, six bucks. A bunch of people bought those, and because it was six bucks, we didn't make a ton of money. But I was happy to spread the hey anything to get more people to watch Firefly. And you know, by the way, Firefly is only ten bucks right now on. Uh, on DVD and 20 on Blu-ray if you still want to get it. If you haven't done Firefly, it's totally not like The Wire, right? It's not, um, it's not like one of those things that everyone is telling you to, uh, every, everyone is telling you to watch, but is actually kind of a slog, though a brilliant slog. Uh, let's see. Oh, someone bought Ron, um, a Blu-ray of, of, uh, of Ron. That's, pretty awesome uh the joss whedon much ado about nothing someone's getting that and uh oh and and then someone after my own heart i like the show justified i don't know if you guys watch it at all but uh someone is getting the complete fourth season of justified so you know that's exciting those are some some awesome holiday gifts coming from overthinkers to overthinkers and and thank you for uh uh, thank you for indulging us with these these spots this month, and thank you also for supporting us by using the uh, the affiliate code uh, when you do your holiday shopping. We uh, appreciate it very very much. All right, into the podcast, uh, and thanks again for uh, supporting us and for your indulgence. Um, question of the week: This is an American Hustle related question. How does the ice fishing story end? First in the alphabet, actually a very good gift giver himself. One of the best gift givers uh, I've ever had the pleasure of being friends with. Uh, it's Matt Belinky. And, and I have to preface this by saying that Matt has not seen American Hustle. So he doesn't know what the hell we're okay. talking about. Uh, right. And because I didn't know what you're talking about, I, I cheated. And so I Googled a uh, movie ice fishing story and I did not find American also, but I did find that in 2010, there was an ice fishing uh, themed horror movie called hypothermia, uh, <laughs> which is about 
a father-son team. The, the father, the, the lead role is played by uh, Michael Rooker, who is is now sort of subsequently become very well known as uh, Merle from The Walking Dead. For you Walking Dead fans out there, um, and uh, so he's like you know taking his son ice fishing, and then there's a sort of an you know, and, and they're sort of like a, a simple sort of like backwoods type father-son sort of rednecky uh, uh, father-son team, and then some big city. Uh, folks come out to sort of ice fish with their fancy ice fishing gear. And so I, it, it seems to start out being sort of about class warfare. But judging from the posters, it ends up being about warfare, about a, a guy in like a, a swamp thing suit who comes up through the ice looking for, for fresh meat. Uh, so I'm guessing that it's, it's about, it's sort of a post, um, you know, uh, 2008 recession movie about how like the class warfare is just sort of a smokescreen that keeps us from realizing that the real the real enemy is uh the the creature that lives below the ice below the surface which which i guess is like i don't know of a, a, a financial deregulation or uh, you know i haven't seen the movie but but i'm going to go ahead and say that it's about how we need the volcker rule and we need it now so it's a timely movie if you've been reading the news this week. Um, and, uh, and for you Michael Rooker fans out there, I'm guessing, and this is spoiler alert for The Walking Dead a little bit, that at some point the creature will like eat his hand and he will replace his hand with an ice fishing rod and then like go after it in some ice fishing finale. <laughs> I feel like there's some title con- there's some title confusion with a movie like this. If you're doing ice fishing and you call it hypothermia, I'm going to assume that it's just they fall through the ice and it's basically like closed water, right? That they're gonna they're gonna freeze right. to death. Like if you're gonna have a, a swamp beast, you need a you need a better title than that, which is probably why we've never heard of this movie. I, I mean, I would, yeah. I would say that, that there's a there's a ghost ship moment here, which is, or you could call it like a Chekhov's thin ice, right? <laughs> like if there was a movie set entirely upon a frozen lake, at some point somebody will fall through the surface of the ice into the water. Yeah, yeah tell that to Disney on Ice, man. <laughs> Chekhov's Chekhov's trap door. Uh, all right, next in the alphabet, Peter Fenzel. Okay, so I'll fill everybody in who hasn't necessarily seen American Hustle. Um, the, ice sto- the ice fishing story is a story that Louis C.K., playing the sort of straight-laced Midwestern FBI agent who is the immediate uh, supervisor of Bradley Cooper's sort of like hotshot disco dancing FBI agent, uh, begins to tell him this sort of homespun story of his brother and his father and him all going ice fishing. And the brother insists that they go ice fishing in October rather than in November when they usually go ice fishing. And Bradley Cooper keeps trying to guess what the end of the ice fishing story is, and he's always wrong. And he only guesses twice. And Louis C.K. clarifies that it is not a story about being overly eager, about going out to the ice, to the ice early in October and thus crashing through the ice because it is too thin. And it is not a story about protection, about the father coming in and pulling everybody off the ice because they were out there when it was dangerous. Uh, so with that in mind, and also considering like what happens in the movie, I'm going to say that the ice fishing story ends with them all spending their entire day uh, dealing with the wood in their little stove. He mentions there's a little stove that they have. That's an important detail in the story. With the wood, because it's autumn, being soaked through with water. And that instead, and then, and then a big, thick, black smoke coming out of the stove uh, to everybody fishing so that they're coughing all the time. They're not having a fun time. They spend their entire time dealing with the, with the stove, and they don't get to spend any time fishing, uh, which refers to the idea that if you don't 
deal with problems in their appropriate time, you end up creating additional problems that you didn't expect to confront and thus like not having a good time of it. That's my guess on how the ice fishing story ends. Excellent. Yep. And that, that does tie into, uh, uh, what happens in the movie as well. Okay. Uh, Jordan Stokes, you are next in the alphabet. Uh, so three words, I have a three word answer It's less to do with the fact that, that it's the movie at all and more to do with the fact that it's a Louis CK story. So the ice fishing story ends with profound moral weakness. <laughs> yeah. Or like complaining about how smartphones have ruined uh, ice fishing forever. Or saying something <laughs> awful about his daughters. Yeah, right. I, I feel like the, the, the smartphones have ruined things forever is more of like a that, that's like when Jerry Seinfeld is cast as the FBI agent in a in a in, in this movie. <laughs> like with Louis C.K., there's usually something a lot a lot less pleasant underneath and he and he feels real bad about it. Um, so look at the case B, like do they go buy fish to lie to their dad about catching fish? Um, and then like the fish is, has like mercury in it and like gives their dad a brain problem when he eats it or something. And then it's, it's all their fault or, or how, what, what kind of profound moral weakness would come out of the ice fishing story? See, I don't know because I really can't visualize Louis CK going ice fishing. I can't really visualize him as a child either. I basically just visualize him as like, you know, as the persona that he became famous as, which would be more the father in this story. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you know what we you know what happens is the father comes out onto the ice and like sort of yells at them for being on the ice when it's too thin, and then the brother sort of confronts him with the fact that you know they're all out here and they've got the shack out here and they haven't fallen through the ice. So clearly the father is wrong, and is just uh, sort of abusing his authority as a father figure. And the father has to go sort of like, I guess you're right, but but you're still grounded. I think that would be the the Louis C.K. ending to that story. <laughs> so he grounds all of them, and they all have to go sit inside, and nobody gets to go ice fishing. Yeah. Because yeah. He, he felt like his authority was being impinged upon. Yeah. And maybe he goes back out and ice fishes by himself anyway. The father, <laughs> I mean. Yeah, and he has a lot less fun because his sons aren't there with him, which is what he wanted in the first place. Sure, yeah. We have successfully painted a morally bleak picture. <laughs> this must be this is such compelling internet radio <laughs> it's all yeah it's like an episode of this american life or something right right uh okay i i think i'm last um my my answer is that the father has been tricking them all along and it's not actually a lake or uh an ice fishing it's just been an elaborate ruse set up in the swimming pool or something um and they, uh, the the children find themselves blackmailed for their allowance money at the end of the at the end of the whole saga. Nice. That's my my guess, given the plot of the uh, uh, given the plot of the the film. But we're making this film sound more morally bleak than it is. Rather than calling the characters morally weak, I'd prefer to call them morally awesome. Uh, in this, uh, uh, in this movie. So, you know, if you haven't seen, um, what we've said is not really consequential for the plot of American Hustle, but if you haven't seen it, you know, we're going to talk about the plot. And since it's a sort of, well, I I won't call it a heist movie, but it's a, it's a con movie, right? It's, it belongs to that sort of, it belongs to the sort of genre, the same genre as kind of the, the Spanish prisoner, uh, or, 
um, I mean, some heist movies are con movies, but not all con movies are heist movies, right? There's a, I guess what, it's an overlapping, it's a butterfly-shaped Venn diagram uh, of the two with the the narrow section in the middle where they intersect. Um, so we're going to give away some stuff, and that actually kind of matters in this case, though I'm not a huge, like, spoiler guy. Uh, you know, you don't want to know... Um, because there's a, you know, there are twists and cons and stuff like that that go in the movie. Um, there are, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of unsure where, where to jump in. But this is, I mean, I, I guess I'll say it struck me as kind of being a real departure for David O. Russell, given that like Silver Linings Playbook was a very sort of small scale personal movie. This seemed like it was a movie that had things that it larger points that it wanted to make about human nature or about history or about American capitalism. Um, you know, or about the American political process or, or stuff like that. I don't know. Did you, did you get that, that sense as well? I mean, was he operating on, on sort of a bigger canvas or like taking a bigger view uh, with his artistic project here? I think that's a question. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, Jordan. Yeah. What what would you say to it? I mean, like I, I would say, I would say yes, but I didn't feel like there was any overarching thing that it was about. I felt like there were all of these little interesting ideas that were sort of played with and riffed on in a scene or two here and there. Um, but they, they almost sort of like you, you blink and you miss them, or at least that, that's, that's how I felt. But I'm curious to see what you all think. Yeah. I mean, my, my main take on the movie was that it, came up deliberately short on fulfilling a lot of its kind of genre promises. And the reason for that, or at least the sort of mission behind it, was that the movie was was conjuring a certain sort of feeling and reaction. It was trying to, it was a tone movie, more than it was like a, a plot movie necessarily or a message movie. It was a tone movie that was trying to construct certain sorts of moments of interaction with what was going on. I use the word verisimilitude as being like a very important part of this movie, right? Which is that like the characters, the, the period piece aspect of it really ties into all that. That this is a movie that is meant to look like it is happening in something that looks like the 1970s, in something that looks like New Jersey, right? And, and, all, and there's a lot of appearances and there's a lot of reflections. And this all has to do with the fact that the characters are all constructing themselves and conning each other in different ways. Um, but that I felt that ultimately the cons, the political points, the misdirections, the period piece stuff was about uh, interacting with, becoming intimate with, feeling in reaction to the characters uh, and, and sort of what they were going through. I mean, the, the quote that for me stick with me the entire movie and, and really unpacked the whole thing for me, at least as far as I could tell, was this whole idea of the best perfumes kind of smell like garbage, like they have garbage in them, right? Um, and I felt like, in that extent, if you sort of see the movie as, as a sort of series of scents and smells and sensory experiences, if you see the movie as sort of perfumes, the idea that the movie would be like more beautiful, more satisfying, more sublime, because it also kind of has a bunch of trash and garbage in it, meaning like the sort of the costumes aren't quite believable, right? But they're, they're sort of more beautiful and awesome because they're also pretty absurd and kind of trashy. Like the story is more sweet because it also is kind of full of garbage, you know, like like that that kind of stuck with me through a lot of like the idea that it might even be a fuller expression of what David O. Russell has to say about the confidence genre or like the gangster subgenre or whatever other genres it's approaching, because it kind of really fails to fully actualize any of those genres. And that the the net result of this 
is to produce moments of tone that you inter that you connect with like really strongly. Right. I called uh, them. I sort of thought of them as gestures. Right. And there was oh. sort of there was sort of like the Goodfellas gesture with the the kind of split narration and the way it kind of came in irregularly in an irregular fashion throughout the. Uh, throughout the film, I felt like there was a bit of a Coen Brothers gesture, uh, right? Just by the the sort of, I don't know, the balls to the wall, you know, completely, you know, the the uh, the with the sense of world building is what I what I mean to say, and the utter commitment, the just sort of balls out commitment to the uh, to the farcical, ridiculous um, world building to like Jeremy Renner's Pompadour, you know? Yes. Right. Yeah. It's definitely like, like definitely Jer- the movie the movie for hairstyles this year. Yeah. <laughs> and not the Hunger Games catching fire. <laughs> well, let me well, ask okay. you a question. Here's the thing. So I I've seen the posters all around and the poster almost looks like it's the poster for like a con- it has a it, it it seems akin to Anchorman to me and that like these these characters have such remarkable hairstyles and and they are dressed in such an over the top 70s way that it almost seems like this is a movie in which like you will be invited to like make funds at the excesses the 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 uh uh, a baroque excesses of style of the seventies. Uh, so, I mean, is it a funny movie, or is it is its tone towards the seventies? Uh, sort of like, wow, can you believe that America was like this? Yes, but not in a funny way. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is exactly what it has to say about the seventies. But it's it's uh, it's an honest question. <laughs> like, they really want to know whether you believe that. <laughs> oh my God, do you do you believe that America was actually like this at some point? Yeah. Um, the, yeah, there's like, there's like to give you an idea, there's a moment where Bradley Cooper and Amy Adams are in a disco club, and like they they have like a really intense personal relationship where like it's not clear whether she's manipulating him or he's manipulating her or whether they're trying to get together, and they go into the bathroom stall at the ladies' bathroom at the disco club, presumably to have sex. But instead, have like a really super intense conversation about their messed up relationship, yeah. <laughs> right? like, and you sort of like, and it, it ends up wounding both of them like greatly down the line. Yeah. So it's like, wow, the seventies are messed up and crazy, and these kinds of things happen in our idea of the seventies. But uh, yeah, it's not like. And then they had a. Uh, then I love lamp happened, and it was hilarious. Right. <laughs> right, like, two things. Two things I have to say about that scene. One, the fact that it ends with her saying in a British accent, which is fake, and he doesn't know that it's fake, this is real, this is real, this is real, over and over again. And this is, like, something that, that gives him strength as a character. I feel like that um, that whole scene is sort of constructed to allow that to happen, and that is sort of a comment on the 70s, right? That, like, to have somebody doing that is a comment on the 70s. But you have to have this whole armature of plot to allow a character to do that without it being like a random Matthew Barney-esque art film. (laughs) (laughs) Is point number one. Point number two is that, um, man, that's a great Donna Summer song, right? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I have, I've never done cocaine, but from what I know from like talking to people and reading stuff, I feel like the experience of listening to that song captures seems to capture the experience of cocaine in a way that includes all of the darkness of cocaine, all of the horrible stuff that it does to you, not just in terms of health, but in terms of like the way that it messes up your personality and turns you into a jerk. And yet, listening to it, I'm like, Man, I kind of want to go have some cocaine right now. You know? <laughs> it's a really good song. And that, I mean, that's all I, I have to say tonight. <laughs> this, um, 
Yeah, this this could be a whole podcast about that scene because it I you know, it struck me that like I love the way that on the soundtrack there were always people knocking and shouting throughout the whole uh throughout the whole um uh, scene, right? Like it didn't, the soundtrack didn't quiet down to let you hear them. And like, you know, uh, you know, a soft kind of, you know, string underscoring come in, you're still in a club, right? You're in a disco and people you're in, I think you're supposed to be in studio 54 actually. Right. Probably. Yeah. I, I mean, that's implied because they say we're going to meet on 54th street. Uh, mm. you know, I don't, maybe there are a lot of discos on 54th street. I, I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, it was one bedroom 54, which is like well, a step up. From <laughs> and they, they, uh, you know, there's still all the women because they're, they're in the women's, uh, lavatory and, uh, and, and there are, you know, women shouting and banging on the door the whole time that they're trying to have this really, really serious conversation in a, um, uh, in a surprisingly spacious, uh, bathroom stall. Um, I thought the Americans with Disabilities Act didn't happen until 1990. Uh, you know, so, uh, but, uh, maybe that's not, maybe there was, maybe it was just renewed in 1990. Uh, maybe the bathrooms at Studio 54 needed extra real estate for activities. No, the, AD, <laughs> the ADA was enacted by Congress in, in, yeah, in 1990. So, right. So it was actually a bathroom stall for boning and, you know, they, it didn't, it didn't have the railing, the, the, you know, ADA compliant railings and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, so what is the, what is the point of the, uh, what is the point of the, the heist plot? I mean, why, if we're going to say the things we're going to say through mood, uh, you know, I don't know, through mood and through kind of the plot being an armature that allows us to set up, to set up these, these moments, why this kind of movie? I mean, I'm, I guess I'm sort of asking a little bit about, about your, your theory of the film, Pete. Gosh, well, I guess... To give to give Blinky a little bit of insight into it, and also to sort of begin to address this question, I feel like we should address the opening scene of the movie sure. too, which is is a I would compare it in level of intensity. It's a it's a long wordless piece of solo acting done in like profound solitude that is not entirely dissimilar from the opening scene of There There Will Be Blood, where Daniel Day Lewis is like digging in a hole in the middle of the desert for right. the American Geological Survey and is like falling on rocks and like hurting himself. Except it's fat Christian Bale meticulously building his elaborate comb-over that he wears for the entire movie. And it's amazing. He, like, spirit gums a merkin or whatever to his head. I mean, I guess that's okay. He, like, spirit gums a tuft of pube-like hair to, like, the crown of his head. And his, like, his hair is, like, flayed, splayed out in every direction in this, like, awful way. And he has this enormous pot belly that he developed for for the movie. And he's, like, he has to, like fold and pin down and like glue down the various parts of his hair and there's just such vulnerability and like sorrow but like sort of gritting through it and like a desire for survival and so the movie the movie talks about survival a lot and 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 i think that this root gets to the root of what it considers to be sort of like real and artifice uh, you know real and fake right real real versus fake which is a big question through the movie and i think that the extent to which it is a is a con movie is kind of about this challenge of like, what is real about you? Um, what is fake about you as, as these characters? What, and then put these, these characters into conflict so that you see what's real about them or what's fake about them, but also like what they construct about themselves. 
Um, it's not a, a case of like, oh, we're going to reveal the reality of that this character, and it's going to be like the apotheosis. It's going to be like everything's going to be awesome in the sense that we're going to know what's true. It's that the things that people create about themselves are also really compelling. Um, so yeah, so I mean, like, I guess I guess the moment that for me is the big payoff yeah. for this being a heist movie um, is the moment when out of nowhere, you know, an hour and a half into the movie, you are suddenly introduced to Robert De Niro, uh-huh. right? Who like who hangs out in this back room in the back of the little fake Jersey casino. Uh, the whole movie is about the mayor of Camden, New Jersey, uh, being involved in a plan to revitalize Atlantic City and and trying to get him to accept bribes so that FBI agents can arrest him and thus make their careers off of his downfall. Right, and we're, not, we're led to believe he's like a partially corrupt guy, but he's not like incredibly corrupt, and he's probably a pretty decent fellow, all things considered. But like the FBI needs to like juke the stats or whatever, and and things keep escalating, and the FBI keeps sort of raising the stakes and raising the stakes, and 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 uh, Christian Bale has to work for them because they've caught him uh, conning people in the small time, and he he has to work for them or else he's either going to go to jail or they're going to go after his son or whatever. Um, and they meet Robert De Niro in this back room, and Christian Bale's character knows that they are now, like, way out of their depth, that this is a guy who murders people, yeah. right? He's a hitman for Meyer Lansky, he, right? yeah, and they're no longer right, dealing right. with, yeah, exactly. And, and it's like, and they've brought this Mexican guy dressed up as an Arab sheik to this meeting, <laughs> this Mexican FBI agent, to try to trick the mafia into accepting, you know, into, like, offering these bribes um, to try to, or accepting these bribes and funneling these bribes through various politicians to revitalize Atlantic City. And Robert De Niro starts speaking in Arabic to the Mexican sheik, right? Although I think it's right, I think it's right after that or right before that that he says, and this is, I mean, this is why I explain all this is the big payoff. It's like, we're a real organization. Yeah. Right. And he says that about the mafia. He says, we're a real organization. And he says, are, are you real? And, when, and everybody has been saying throughout the movie, we're real, we're real, you're fake, you're fake. And it's all carried this great sense of uncertainty and this deep cutting irony, like in the scene that Jordan was talking about, where she says that she's, let's, be, let's not be fake, let's be real in a fake British accent. But when Robert De Niro says it, it is like absolutely positively credible and true, right? At least in the context that we experience it, that the mafia is a real organization in, this, in the sense that they will kill you if you mess with them. So there's like a survival angle to it, but there's also the sense that they just they have a different relationship with artifice and with with gaming and with like all these other things. Um, and I think that the mafia as a as a stakes raiser and as a sort of external element to these characters, I don't know. I was wrestling with, and maybe you guys can weigh in on this too. I was wrestling with whether the 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 Robert De Niro character in this movie and the mafia in general is meant to be like one of several of the characters in the sense that it has a similar sort of metaphysics associated with it, all these characters, or whether it's really meant to be sort of an external reflection. Like the characters are trying, can the, could the characters be real is what I'm saying. Could these characters find a way to be real if they wanted to be real? Is that really what they're going after in all of their cons and all their chasing and all of their gaming? Are they trying to find their true selves? Are they trying to find real relationships? Or is being real something that can only be done by sort of these demigod figures that stand on the periphery and kind of like enforce the reckoning on these people? Um, and sort of con movies tend to have both of these sorts of relationships, right? Like people who are sort of playing it fast and loose and then sort of immovable objects that the characters need to somehow evade or get around. Yeah, right. 
I, mean, I don't know. Did you guys? Did, is the yeah. is the end of, is the end of the movie? And we're we're uh, we're struggling with uh, some internet stuff and getting Jordan back on the call. So I oh, you know, okay. I wish he were here to respond to that. But I mean, do, what in the ending of the movie? You know, um, uh, Christian Bale ends up with Amy Adams and ends up divorced from Jennifer Lawrence, uh, but sharing custody of the son who is not actually his son, right? Who is Jennifer Lawrence's son, whom he has adopted when he married Jennifer Lawrence. Um, yeah. right. And, uh, that, that it's, uh, you know, and it's clear that he's gotten out of the con man game. And in a sense, this is somehow, this is somehow more real because he's just doing, uh, you know, I don't know, dry cleaning and art dealing and, and, uh, right. And stuff like that. But it's, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's sort of funny, um, it's sort of funny because try because art dealing is you know sort of like being a con man in that the 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 thing about being a con man and the thing about that scene with the the um the the elaborate comb over uh the meticulously constructed you know toupee and comb over is that um you know reality is a, is a function of like how badly how strong your will is to make it so right and that's a you know that's a, that's the thing about con movies and about the that this sort of genre generally is that it it um it uh sort of holds up a dichotomy between the con and the mark and the con has a stronger will has a has a more forceful projection right of his or her will uh that the mark sort of falls into um and there's a lot there's a lot to be said about it and there's a lot to be said about sort of reading people and about knowing what people want and giving people what they want um but in in some sense you know the 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 art in in the art world even if you're not selling forged paintings like he is at the beginning of the movie the 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 um uh so uh even if you're not you know, a, a criminal art dealer, you're, you're still dealing with things, the whole value of which is set by convention, right? Is set by just mutual hallucination, by sort of mutual decision. There's a collective will, right, that gets enforced uh, in the art dealing world. And I, you know, I think it's important that he's like an art dealer and not, you know, a stevedore, right. Or a a real estate broker, right. He doesn't sell real estate. Um, (laughs) he sells fake estate, uh, right. And not estate at all. He said, he sells these objects, the, the value of which is, is, sort of entirely entirely notional and yet at the end we're we're meant to have the sense that what happened it that this situation is more real being with amy adams instead of jennifer lawrence is more real uh because she's a better uh partner for him than jennifer lawrence is and i mean i don't know i think we need to to talk a little bit about the woman the women in this movie because i think this movie may have kind of a woman problem a little bit uh but um you know, but but just staying on the on the issue of real. I don't know. Is it more? Is the, is this situation at the end more real? I don't think it is. Yeah, right. Um, well, that, first, me neither. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think if we look at it from the perspective of, you know, why does Christian Bale dress up the way that he does and and cultivate the personality that he does? Why does Amy Adams' character do that also? 
the the thing that they have in common in their relationship is they both do the same thing in order to survive because they grew up without opportunities. At least that's what we're told and we're led to believe in like the monologue or in the in the um the narration is that Christian Bale became the person he became because otherwise he would not have been able to make a living or sort of survive because he wasn't like his father. He couldn't just run a glass business. It just wouldn't have worked. And Amy Adams is, you know, from um, Albuquerque and, and, or what have you. And, and, you know, she needed to get out or for some reason. So the, the base of their relationship is this urge to, for survival, pushing them to create these fake identities and these fake versions of themselves. Um, in the end, when they're living together and they're art dealers, the, the urgency of their need for survival is pretty much gone, right? Like, there's no pressing need for them to continue to dress the way that they dress or act the way that they act. And they don't really revert to a sort of like, okay, we can shut it off and we don't have to be these people. Like, they do, you, you, in the, at least in the images, they still look basically the same. I mean, like, Amy Adams isn't wearing the quite such illegal garments that she's wearing in most of the movie, like, which I feel like you could, maybe the 70s were different than I know, but it would have been a lot of trouble to wear a lot of those outfits in public, I'm guessing. Um, <laughs> yeah, there, there were no, there were, brassieres had not been invented in, yeah, in, the, in the 1970s of American Hustle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's like, I don't really feel like the state that they're in at the end of the movie is a reflection of who they really are. So much as it sort of is a, just sort of where things ended, like where things landed, um, the result of everything that happened. And it was not a quest. To, and quest realness isn't necessarily something that's even desirable in this movie. Because what is realness but the moment when your back is totally against the wall? Like the moment when you are facing like actual death and judgment for the things that you've done. Like that's what's real in this movie is, is like the urgency of the mob gun against your head. And what's fake is the fun times and the art dealing and the dancing and, like, the music and the comb-overs and the suits and, like, the outfits and the swimming pools. You know, the cold-cut king of New York, you know, like the pompadour on the white mayor of Black Camden. You know, like, like these are the things that are fake but that are good and lovable in this movie, right? Or the things that we're, we're sort of, we, we would, at least I came to sympathize with or, or came to think were, were desirable, that people would seek out. Right. It's like nobody wants to seek out the true reckoning. This isn't a movie of people going out there and being like, who am I? Like, who is John Proctor? Right. Like, you know, it's, it's more a matter of like, how do I get out of this with my skin intact? And having your skin intact is kind of a good thing. I mean, it's sort of like the ending of No Country for Old Men in certain ways. In that, like, you know, Chigger at the end of that movie is like, I mean, spoilers, I guess, if you haven't seen it yet, but he's hit by a station wagon, right? By like a Subaru Outback or something. Like, and he's been this looming, you know, force of judgment throughout the entire movie, like roaming from town to town, back and forth across the border or whatever. And it's like a suburban station wagon that finally like nails him, right? He doesn't get killed, but it's like a pretty bad blow that he takes. And then there's a really sharp irony to that. There's this idea that this, this seriousness that you had a lot of the gas has been taken out of it. A lot of like the, it's been kind of taken down a huge peg by the prominence of bourgeois living, right? Like, which is this huge looming cultural energy um, that, that few can escape. Um, and I felt like it's sort of like the, that, and that like, the, you know, if they end up driving a station wagon, it's sort of a repudiation to an extent of like their previous struggles, um, or at least it's like conclusion, but not its fulfillment. Um, I don't know. Like, yeah, sure. Like Walter White's Pontiac Aztec. It, uh, you know. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. It's, it's but yeah, I mean, it's like, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like it's realer. And I mean, but yeah, it's like what relationships are real is the relationship that we could talk about the relationship between 
Christian Bale's character and Jennifer Lawrence's character, sure. which is super intense, you know, and it's, it's basically, it's an abusive relationship, uh, in a lot of ways. Like she abuses him a lot, right? Like, and she like gaslights him and yell and like berates him and like keeps setting the house on fire and like endangers the child in order to get him to try to do stuff. And, um, and I bet at the same time, she's very charming and, 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 you know, very lovable and, and everybody, she's a life of the party and everybody loves her and you sympathize with her situation a lot. So it's definitely like, you know, half of one, half of the other, right? Like what's real about her is her like, you know, bipolar depression that causes her to have these fits is her cruelty to Christian Bale's character. Are those the things that are real or is like her, like, you know, lighting up the room with a smile, the thing that's real and the fake thing is like the horrible living situation that she's in because of her circumstances that's been laid on top of it. Or, you know, I mean, it doesn't even matter, I guess, as long as everybody's still alive, like, is it, is it all sort of different kinds of fake that are competing for your attention? Um, I don't know. I mean, for the Jennifer Lawrence character, I feel like one of the defining moments, um, other than the amazing science oven scene, which I feel like we need to talk about. <laughs> uh, science oven is an amazing scene. Um, but the, the moment when she, when she turns to everybody, this is one of, this is like, you were talking about the, the Amy Adams moment in the bathroom stall. The whole thing is constructed around her getting to say that line in a British accent. The whole, I feel like the whole situation in the, in the little Jersey basement casino is structured so that Jennifer Lawrence can look at the mobsters across the room and say, you're scared of those guys. I'm not scared of those guys. And can like walk across the room and like sort of pour herself into a chair. Right. And like get a cigarette lit and just be like amidst these mobsters, just like totally working the room and being the sort of glorious uh, you know, mall, you know, in the, in the mafia sense, this sort of glorious mall figure that they're all just in, instantly enchanted with and knowing that her power to manipulate is like based in this sort of abusive tendency that she has. And, and we've seen the dark side of it, but here it is in all of its beauty. Here's like the perfume that smells all the sweeter because it's full of garbage. Right. Because um, it's it, right. It's sort of, it's sort of rotten, right? What's the real smell of the perfume, right? Is the question you're saying, is it sweet or is it, does it smell like, you know, rotten meat or garbage? or you know yeah yeah what yeah. uh but isn't, go ahead isn't the movie telling us that like that asking which one of those is real is the is the wrong question right right like yeah. like pretty yeah. clearly and explicitly saying that like it, it is both um and i feel like that that to me is like the great strength of the movie like why i why i really like it is the way that these characters like cannot really be pinned down to uh to what they are yeah yeah. Oh, and so, so, um, Blinks, uh, just so you know, there's a scene in this movie where Jeremy Renner gives Christian Bale a microwave oven <laughs> as sort of like a thank you for being involved in corrupt New Jersey politics. Yeah. And it's Christian super awkward. When microwave ovens had a certain, a certain cash. But once, once again, that seems like the kind of thing that's funny because we live in 2013 and they live in the 70s when microwave ovens were miraculous things, right? Yeah. Oh, it is funny. I mean, as much as we've said that the movie isn't really playing it for laughs, it's a very funny movie. Like, there are a lot of jokes in the movie and a lot of funny moments, but they're also kind of mired in all sorts of sadness and human suffering as well. But they are funny. Um, and it, they keep talking about this microwave oven as the science oven. <laughs> That's what they call it. And and Christian Bale tries to communicate to Jennifer Lawrence, don't put metal in the science oven. <laughs> like, that's what we've been told by Jeremy Renner not to do. Um, we don't know how... <laughs> 
but don't put metal in the science oven. And the very first thing we see Jennifer Lawrence do is like mockingly talking to herself. Don't put metal in the science oven. Don't put metal. And she puts like a dish covered in tin foil or aluminum foil into the microwave and then sets the kitchen on fire. Right. Like, um, like instantly without even really. And then like, she manages to turn it around and make Christian Bale feel guilty for like telling her not to put metal in the microwave and also feel guilty for bringing the microwave into the house. Cause supposedly it takes all the nutrients out of your food. Uh, and is this evil thing because she's yeah she's been reading articles and i love yeah. the you know i don't know i <laughs> pete i've been reading about the power of intention <laughs> <laughs> right um that's that's actually that's of a piece with with what we've been saying right because the 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 uh the movie you know do, do intentions matter or does the result matter and the movie says yes right <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Uh, I sure, absolutely. The the, but I, you know, I don't know. It does. Do you, do you think this movie like are are these? What do you think? What do you think of these women? Because I I was a little. I, I got to say, I was a little uncomfortable with these these. Uh, women characters because Jennifer Lawrence is is sort of so awful, right? Like, and uh, even when she's great, she's awful. And a- and Amy Adams, I sort of don't know. I I really don't know where she is. I really can't pin her down. And I guess that I guess that sort of made me. I guess that made me uncomfortable, right? When the when the female characters are a cipher, uh, right? I sort of wonder whether we're in the presence of of misogynistic male fantasy. But the male characters are all also ciphers. Every human being in this movie is a cipher, right? And so it's it's perhaps not fair of me to accuse. It's not fair of me to to ask this question. Um, but the, 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 uh, you know, I don't know. It's true that the, the two, the, like that, that Jennifer Lawrence is sort of an awful wife. Right. And it's true that, right. That, that, and even when she turns it on, she's being an awful wife because she's flirting with a whole bunch of other people who aren't her husband. Um, and, uh, and Amy Adams is is you you really get the sense that she's sort of into Bradley Cooper for half the uh, for half the movie. So what's a what's a Christian Bale to do with these women? You know, it is interesting. It does place a really undue burden. It places a big uh, storytelling burden to be like, well, unless the movie is able to sort of you know Nadia Comaneci ten point stick the landing in terms of positioning the women in places where we feel comfortable both about their level of empowerment and their level of depth and texture and their moral position in the world that is constructed unless it hits all those things exactly like it, i i become uncomfortable because i'm on guard and i guess that that's like i'm not saying i'm not indicting that phenomenon as something that oh well then we shouldn't care but it's like it's interesting that it exists no no i'm on guard all the time because someone is going to write a freaking article on medium about privilege <laughs> and everyone's going to post it to facebook and i'm going to have to read it 30 times you know yeah, yeah. I, I i you know i'm definitely on guard and and like as regards identity politics i think i think my you know my my general existential state is one of is one of being on guard and it's it's not fair i mean hey that's my hang up right and it's not fair for me to put that on uh, you know, onto works of art that I, that I see movies and books and, and things that I, that I experience, but, but still, I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm the only one. I, I doubt I'm the only one. And, and, uh, you know, so I think it's a, I mean, you know, I think it's a fair thing to ask because, you know, these the, uh, people are releasing art into this environment. Right. Oh, but yeah. isn't that like, that's also kind of the point of it, right? Like, I feel like if you, if you use identity politics to feel entirely at ease, 
you're using it wrong, right? <laughs> like, like, you shouldn't be able to look at a movie. I mean, if the movie is interesting at all, you shouldn't be able to look at it and be like, I feel totally comfortable that my politics are superior to this, and I validate myself by, like, talking smack about the gender roles in this movie. Like, you, like you're, either you interrogate your own garbage or you're like you've you've missed the point of that whole thing, no? But I don't know. No, I I I agree. I agree with you. But the the I don't know. I I. I well, maybe mean, the movie the movie does have one really hilarious scene about identity politics, which is also kind of sad, right? Which is the scene where Jeremy Renner is trying, as the mayor of Camden, New Jersey, is asking uh, Christian Bale. Uh, because Christian Bale, the, the FBI is using this fake Sheik character as, like, the deep pockets that's going to bribe everyone. He asks him if the Sheik is black, right? And the reason he asks, he's asking him if, if and he, because he doesn't know. He doesn't, he doesn't know whether Arabs qualify as black or not. He doesn't understand the difference between different peoples of the world because he's kind of provincial and not very well traveled. And also, like, presumably, like, pretty mired in some pretty racist ways of thinking. But the way, what he's, what he's saying, what he's asking is... You know, if I were to bring this guy around Camden and introduce him to, like, the people of Camden, who are largely black and Puerto Rican, would they identify with him? Would he identify with them? Like, would they forge some sort of connection? Right? Like, or would this be potentially a problem that I, I would have to be on guard against? Yeah, I, I, I want to take, take issue not with anything major that you've said, but just with one point that, like, to what extent is he mired in some ways of thinking? Because, like, in the world that he inhabits... Uh, I feel like he's a like a really inclusive guy, right? Like his oh, vision, yeah, yeah. his vision of the working class sort of encompasses all the people that he knows about, right? And yeah. the, the the people he's trying to help are all the people that he knows about, which are are basically uh, black people, Puerto Rican people, and uh, Italian Americans, right? Like, yeah. well, and, and that's the thing is that when he starts that conversation, it's sort of a big red flag for us as the audience because yeah. he's saying like, okay, here we go, he's going to be huge racist. But it turns out that, like, in this construction, in this body, in this group of people, he's actually as close to a good guy as you're going to get. Yeah. In ter- especially with regards to diversity, right? And it's just the way that he's talking about it is really uncomfortable. And I think this ties into this whole idea of desperation that goes through the whole movie, and that, like, people are, these are all people who came out of really desperate situations, and they're running cons to try to survive and keep things going. It's not like you're not doing this because of a, a huge surplus and benevolence of spirit. You know, there's no Mother Teresa here. Everybody is scratching and clawing to get through. So succeeding even to this degree in being kind of pluralistic and tolerant is, like, remarkable. Like, this is a remarkable guy uh, yeah. in this environment. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Like, the, the morality of the movie, um, for all that there's so much about it that's unusual and interesting and bold, I do feel that the morality comes down to a couple of pretty well-worn platitudes, which is that, yes, everybody scratches and hustles, but some people scratch and hustle only for themselves, and some people scratch and hustle for another, and that, like, makes them good, right? So the fact yeah. that Jeremy Renner honestly wants to redevelop Atlantic City um, even if he doesn't mind lining his pockets, is what marks him as a good guy. Um, and then the other thing that is like the moral message is that that competence is is good, um, and incompetence is wicked, right? Like Jennifer Lawrence, she does some things that are probably morally wrong, but you don't really uh, get angry at her character for that. You get angry at her when she like messes up the plan, right? Um, yeah. 
and same thing with Bradley Cooper. Like he does some horrible stuff, but like you're you're never more angry at him than when he like pushes the briefcase inappropriately, and you're like you are not you are not doing what you're supposed to do. And I think what have you never seen a con movie, you asshole? Yeah, right. Um, and it's especially telling that he's always trying to expand the like the sting, the takedown, to get like more and bigger guys. Whereas Christian Bale gets to be the moral center for being like, no, let's let's do this limited thing and well and competently and get our reward from that. So that's sort of like the the walkaway message is know your role and shut your face, kind of right. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, sort of const- the moment that- oh go ahead constrain your ambition right yeah. like to because with christian uh, with uh not christian bale with bradley cooper it's ambition right it's hubris uh it's sort of being above his it's being above his station and and christian bale definitely yeah knows his place and that's the thing that's good about him is is what you're saying i guess yeah. i'm agreeing with you i guess yeah. there was no point in me talking now no, no, Pete, no, what did I, you have to say <laughs> I mean, I think that you're generally right about the way that the movie addresses it. I think that because this is a movie of like of indi- of like putting a lot of structure around individual moments that really stand out, and as such, like the overall structure of the movie kind of suffers. And that's something we could also talk about because it gets a little bit muddy. And for people who really want to have like a cogency of genre in their movies, this is not the movie for you. Much as Silver Linings Playbook was not the movie for you if you were disturbed that it became a dance movie two thirds of the way through, right? Like if that bothers you, then like and this is not the movie you're going to like. Yeah, we don't. Need, we don't need to make excuses for those people who are bothered by any movie. <laughs> no, I, I dance movie. <laughs> I, it wasn't the dance movie that that bothered me. It was the sort of conventional romantic comedy. Like I when when Silver Linings Playbook came out, you know, recall that I said on this very podcast that I thought it was a good movie coupled with an okay movie, and the good movie was this this very personal and unconventional movie about about mental illness uh, that was well acted and and just kind of uh, and and not super forward moving, just kind of this this character study about these people who sort of sat in place and then the the okay movie was a conventional romantic comedy um which i didn't like as much right like and yeah this definitely has the same sort of kind of uh, frankenstein monster quality of having a lot of different parts you know grafted grafted onto each other i think because of a unified aesthetic that gets um papered over to a greater extent in this movie than than it did in in silver linings playbook where it's like it was a different camera you know spinning around wasn't there a shot like spinning around the characters in their last smooch or something like that that was a different camera than than the you know the camera that's that at the beginning that's just kind of uncompromising and watching you know robert de niro's ocd as he like changes the channels while he's while he's watching the football games um and actually talking about the talking about the camera and talking about the the photography in this movie is something that 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 we could get in but i've i've completely gone down a rat hole and i i don't mean to to hijack your point pete so so uh finish what you were trying to say oh so i was just saying is that um, the overall moral shape of the movie, I think, is pretty much what Jordan has described, though there are moments that jump out where it kind of criticizes itself or kind of pulls into relief places where it kind of doesn't say that thing. Like one moment that really sticks out to me is after the Bradley Cooper character has beaten up the Louis C.K. character, which is incredibly cruel and awful and should really be punished by any by any stretch of the imagination. But for whatever reason, is not. 
Um, there's the moment where he's celebrating the success of his sting operation, and, and Louis C.K. is, like, sitting on the couch all sad and bloodied and is eventually, like, compelled to leave the party. And, and Bradley Cooper, like, sits in his chair after, like, humping him, right? Like, he humps him like a dog until he leaves. Uh, I don't know if you guys hear the dog barking in this room, but that's Bradley Cooper. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I, I got, but he, I got less, less of a dog, more of a Halo player vibe from it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, little Master Chief needs to get some kibble and some treats. Um, but, but after Louis C.K. leaves, Bradley Cooper sits in his chair and does like a Louis C.K. impression. Right, where he's sort of like, I'm so sulky, like, I'm so sad in the corner. And then just, like, laughs, these very full laughs with all of his, like, you know, Bradley Cooper charm machine turned up to, like, you know, past the red line where it becomes creepy. Right, like, he's, like, he's like full-on laughing and, and with a giant mouth uh, at, at, like, the, at the patheticness of, this, of his boss, who he's humiliated and beaten and abused and, like, you know, professionally undermined. Right. And, and you see when you see that, you see that this character, how unheroic this character is and you see how sort of not to be respected what this character is doing is. And, and like it, it's it's definitely contrasts the FBI as an organization from the mafia as an organization. You sort of wonder whether it's real in what it's trying to accomplish. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's like it, it just seems like then what the FBI is doing also has is, a, is also has a bunch of garbage in it. Like if you enjoy the sweet smell of like the mechanician, the, the you know the machinations of liberty or what have you, uh, mm-hmm. then you know I hope you also enjoy landfill because it's in there, right? And like um, and broken dreams and shattered careers and people who want to tell you stories about ice fishing but then just end up like you know through the garbage disposal. But again, I feel like the the moral calculus there is that um, the guy who did like the big score, the big case, the um. You know the the McNulty of the world, right? Um, yeah. Is the villain, whereas the jobber, like, and Louis C.K. is like jobber par excellence, um, yeah. is is then becomes the moral center because he quietly and competently does what it is his job to do. You know, and and that's like part of why he's likable. I feel like right, right, right. Yeah, definitely. So like, so Louis C.K. is kind of elevated at the same time that Bradley Cooper is brought down in the scene where Bradley Cooper's character is being exalted while Louis C.K.'s character is being humiliated. So there's both, there's kind of a, a shearing irony to it and a certain amount of, of beauty to that, I suppose, and sublimity um, sure, in, yeah, the, in that yeah. tonal moment. Um, but yeah, but at the same time, like, it's a moment. It's a moment that stands out from a movie that around it uh, is is pretty complicated uh, in, in its various and shifting approaches to its dynamics. Can I say, like, to the question of genre, um, to to hijack the conversation entirely? Oh yeah, go. Um, yeah. So I wonder if it might be one thing that you could say is that this movie is uh, not actually a con movie. This movie is a melodrama, and specifically, it's a melodrama for people who don't like sadness as their primary emotional flavor in the melodrama. Because huh. when, when film people talk about genre, the melodrama is always like really, really hard to define. There are some movies you can look at and say that's definitely it, but when you try to sort of list plot features, list uh, list this, list that, it, it really sort of falls apart. Um, and I feel like the, the definition that sticks the best is that melodrama is a form of storytelling where rather than trying to have things make causal sense, you just have these overwhelming aesthetic moments 
that kind of stand on their own. And very often, like to the degree that there is anything going on under the surface, it's uh, it's sort of pushed off onto stuff like the color balance and the hairstyle, and uh, and all of the characters' actions are these futile little gestures, like throwing a drink in somebody's face, and so on. Um, and you know, the way that you kept talking about this, Pete, is like it's a series of moments that uh, that aren't even necessarily intended to coalesce into anything. Is like exactly the discourse that surrounds classic melodramas, like Douglas Sirk and people like that um and yet you know here it it doesn't feel like a melodrama because it's not weepy but you get the same kind of uh aesthetic stuff and you definitely get these heightened emotional responses to individual scenes right i don't know and and you get this sense that that life is this machine that kind of churns on and tragically chews people up as it goes, right? Or that that like there isn't much hope for individual agency in altering the course of of you know the snowball that's already rolling down the hill to completely mix metaphors. Yeah. Sure. And you could even jump back to Silver Linings Playbook and say it's the same thing, where there you get the, the happy ending, but it's in, like an entirely unbelievable happy ending. So the only escape that's ever permitted to you, like shown to you, is one that is so laughably false that it just drives home the message all the more that, in fact, there really is no escape from this. Which yeah, is a much like- darker picture of mental illness than I think Silver Linings Playbook intended to paint. Oh, no, man. I don't <laughs> think that's a happy movie about mental illness. <laughs> like, it has, it has its, its moments. Oh, go on. Oh, no, no, I was just saying it's a happy movie about dancing, but not a happy one about being bipolar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, it, it, uh, to the degree that it happy it's because it shows that like in fact everybody in the world is insane so it doesn't it doesn't make you a bad person right which is a great message um but i don't think that like that you're supposed to walk away from that and be like yeah you know i could if i ever succumb to depression i would just like meet cute with an adorable other depressed person <laughs> no right, right yeah it's it's saying that the sort of the condition of all people is you know uh, whether or not it's pathologized is a sort of mental illness is a, a state of mental unbalance right yeah uh sure fair fair enough and the, and which sort of gives the lie to the sort of pathologizing instinct to you know i don't know uh call people's uh, there's certain you know states of unbalanced disease and not not other states of uh states of unbalance you know and and in the same way i guess american hustle you know to call to call certain things real and and other things not real um it, it, right like is is sort of a is sort of a fool's errand except for robert de niro that guy is for real yeah he's like hmm. j-lo don't be fooled by the rocks that he's got yeah, he's real the way he I'm talks curious. is that could you guys comment a little on, on what Robert De Niro sort of shows up for work at this movie? Because here's the movie I'm really excited about this holiday series uh, season is uh, is Grudge Match because <laughs> I have a big thing for Sylvester Stallone. And honestly, the question I've been asking myself is: Will I get another chance to see either Sylvester Stallone or Robert De Niro shirtless 
Um, and 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 both of those wishes will be answered on Christmas Day. So the best present I could ask for, really, is like a prolonged third act of both of them wearing nothing but a pair of, of sweaty gym trunks. Um, so I'm, I'm and, and this is all this is all to say that that Robert De Niro has a reputation of sort of phoning it in nowadays. Uh, so I'm curious, is like, d- does the the Robert De Niro acting powerhouse uh, 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 reemerge in American Hustle? Hmm. <laughs> it's tough to say because, like, the the nature of his character, like, they they go into this uh, this meeting with casino people, and then it's revealed that in the back room is this straight up mob guy, um, and Christian Bale immediately tries to say, like, we cannot go meet with him. We cannot try to take this guy down with this little uh, this little sting operation that we're running. This will only lead to trouble. And Bradley Cooper, like, sort of you know, bulls his way through. Um, so De Niro's function in the scene is to like, to be still and to be quiet and to say very, very little. Like he's this one motionless point. Um, and like in doing that, he shows how, uh, how sort of outmatched everybody else is by him. So I think it's, it's a very effective performance, but he's not asked to do a lot, right? Like, he's basically asked to to do as little as possible. Yeah, 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 except, except, Jordan, he's asked to be Robert De Niro and have had the career in movies that he's had up right. to that point, you know what I <laughs> which, mean? Like, which he manages to do, more or less. <laughs> he's, he's, he's asked to walk in the room carrying the weight of Goodfellas and Casino to, you know, to say nothing of, of Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and, and, you know, I don't know, all the things that you know and analyze this and analyze that right Right. um all these things like all these things walk into the room i feel like when when robert de niro walks into the room and i feel like that the movie is uh, i feel like oh jesus um i think that the movie is trading on those uh, uh right is trading on that and is trading yeah. on his his history, especially since I got the sense sometimes from Christian Bale that he was kind of doing a Robert De Niro, like especially with <laughs> all the frowning and all the like uh, kind of mouth stuff that he was doing. Um, it reminded me of like Robert De Niro in Jackie Brown or something, you know, something like that, where De Niro played a low life, right? And uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. It, it, it was, especially with the, the sort of more direct homage to, to Goodfellas in the, the yeah. man, woman, the man, woman narration, like, you know, I, and I don't know. I think, he, no, I, I, I think, right. I think you're absolutely right that they're, uh, that they're trading on that because once they, like, once he appears, they, uh, they have this little sort of flashback cutaway to him being a, a badass in the past and, like, shooting some guy down in the street. And Christian Bale's narrator says, like, this is the guy that we have to contend with. And it's De Niro, right? So, like, absolutely. The movie is, is sort of nudging you so hard about the fact that he is that guy. Um, and, like, and is sort of the king of these kinds of characters and these kinds of plots, right? You know, they, they all should be nervous and exalted to be in that room with him. Yeah, it's, I mean, you, you could have, the only way you could have gone one better is if it was Joe Pesci, right? <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but I, you know, I don't know. I, I guess Robert De Niro is the guy who's friends with David O. Russell. So yeah. there you go. I feel like it's relatively rare for someone to be like, I wish they could have gotten Joe Pesci, but I guess De Niro will be. <laughs> well, just because in, in Joe Pesci, it's that character, but he's sort of so 
uh, he's he's so divorced. He's so uh, kind of uh, d- impossible to handle already, right? He's such a psychopath um, mm-hmm. in in Goodfellas, and it, it like it he becomes like a baroque psychopath in in Casino. Uh, sure, you know, yeah, I, yeah. like he he had already gone down that rabbit hole like while he was doing the mafia movies, whereas uh, whereas De Niro doesn't start sort of joking about his image until he starts doing the late period comedies, right? So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's until like right about. until meet the meet the parents, right? Yeah, yeah, or or analyze analyze those, <laughs> <laughs> analyze this thing over there, the silver, li- silver linings playbook. Analyze these. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I think it's probably time for us to wrap. Uh, clearly, a good movie, and we're we're um, or an interesting movie, I should say, because we don't we don't say anything as as pedestrian as good or bad about the movies that we talk about. <laughs> on the overthinking it podcast so thank you gentlemen for talking about it uh and uh you know being here on the podcast and thank you listeners for listening to the podcast um we will uh be back next week with another overthinking it podcast and there may just be a uh a christmas podcast surprise there may be a podcast in your stocking the moment of the uh, the the morning podcast miracle <laughs> it's a wonderful life um hmm. uh, the morning of the 25th uh you might just uh check your podcatcher to find that it has downloaded a a christmas miracle podcast uh, from overthinking it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm just conning you. Maybe this whole last 30 seconds is just me being a jerk. Uh, and there's actually no special episode, but there could be, um, it depends. It depends if they've been good or bad, you know? Right. Yes. Good overthinkers will receive a podcast download on Christmas morning. Um, and uh, and bad overthinkers won't. Just to plug a little bit of what's going on on the site, uh, the TFT podcast has uh, Ryan and me talking about Beyonce, the visual album that was a uh, surprise released a uh, week before last. Um, and it's a it's a very interesting conversation and a very interesting uh, uh, album work. I, I sort of struggle with what to call it uh, because it's it's sort of a film. It's sort of a uh, a record. I you know um, it's a visual album. It is Beyonce, and we talk about it uh, on the TFT podcast. And uh, you know, there's more. Uh, we talk a little bit about Christmas music in a TFT podcast to be released uh, on Christmas Eve. Um, um, and uh, we're going to try and keep the overthinking it uh, machine going uh, over over the break for all of your uh, all of your holiday overthinking uh, needs. So you can find us uh, on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't doesn't deserve. <laughs> People subject the the popular culture to a level of scrutiny that they want to subject it to, though. Hey, uh, you guys want you want you guys want to uh, subscribe to the podcast? Oh, I'm sorry, I can't let you do that. I can't let you. <laughs> no, 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 Pete. I, re- I I really do. I, is this the guy, uh, Jordan? Is this I is Pete the guy I, you were telling me about? The guy with the podcast. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no
I would love to do it, but I can't do it. It's a, that's a no. That's got to be a no. What, what, I, I got 5,000. I got 5,000 right here. I hear 5,000 gets me 10,000 podcasts. Okay. <laughs> we'll let you subscribe to the podcast, but you cannot go onto iTunes and rate it five stars.